0: Our scripture reading for today is from Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 25. This is found on page 824 and 825 in the Pew Bible. If you don't own a Bible, please feel free to take a hardback black one from us as a gift. So again, Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 25. And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments, he said to him. Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks, Jake. Well, good morning, and welcome to Brookside Campus of Christ Community. My name is Bill Gorman. I'm the campus pastor here. Really grateful that you uh, are with us this morning, that you're able to to gather with us here. And especially if you're newer, if this is one of your first times with us um, and you're exploring churches or coming back to church maybe for the first time in a long time, I know it's not easy to walk into a new church. And so thanks for doing that this morning. Hopefully you felt welcome here and let us know if there's anything that we can do um, to serve you this morning. Well, before we look at this uh, passage of scripture that Jake read for us, I'd like to begin um, by asking uh, God to help us in this and uh, in praying together. And uh, I'm also going to realize that my, uh, my iPad, with my sermon notes on it, is not in here. Um, which wouldn't be great. Uh, I thought that I had it in here. This has never happened before in, uh, in four years of, uh, well, all of my years of preaching. Um, so Paul's going to go check for me here. Um, well... You know, not everything uh, goes exactly as planned. I do have a a hard copy of my manuscript um, back there. Thank you, Paul. Let's give a hand to Paul Brandis, everybody. There's a reason we uh, we kept Paul around. So, Um, yeah, there we go. All right, well, let's pray. And then we'll dive into uh, our passage this morning. Father in heaven, I'm grateful for laughter. And I'm grateful for um, the joy that you give us. And I'm grateful for your word that you speak to us. And I pray this morning for myself as well as every one of us here that we would have ears to hear what you would say to us this morning. Turn up the hardened places of our hearts um, that they might be good soil for the seed that you would like to plant today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, how do I get eternal life? how do I live forever? That's the question that's put to Jesus in this text this morning by this man. He says, how do I live forever? And this question, it reminds me of this man right here. And you might be wondering, who is that Guy, and and why does a pasty white guy from the 60s remind you of this passage? Well, I'm glad you asked those questions. This is Dr. James Bedford. And uh, Dr. Bedford, in 1967, became the very first person to ever undergo cryonic suspension, meaning that when he died, instead of being buried, he had himself frozen. And hope that one day a cure would be found to the cancer that caused his death. And that he would be able to be unfrozen and then be brought back to life. Now, I know that sounds... And you can take his picture down now if you want. We don't have to keep looking at him. Um, Maybe this sounds like something kind of crazy from the 1960s. And it is. Kind of a crazy thing from the 1960s, but it's for real. And today, the Alcor Life Extension Foundation, it's based in Scottsdale, Arizona, will freeze you. Now, I don't know about basing something in the desert that's supposed to keep you frozen, but I didn't plan that. Um, but for $200,000, you can have the Alcor Life Extension Foundation freeze you in hopes that someday you might be able to live forever. Forever. Now, I think for most of us this morning, I suspect we aren't trying to live forever in, in that kind of a way, but, but only probably because we think it wouldn't work, right? Maybe if we thought that we really had a chance that way. But it points to this human quest that we're on not to die, that we don't want to die. And sort of on a slightly less bizarre note than that, um, I, I pulled my Economist magazine out of the mailbox uh, yesterday afternoon, and the, the cover story is, is cheating death. The science that can extend your lifespan. Now, I haven't read this, so I have no idea what it says about this. Um, because there was a time when I eagerly awaited the arrival of My Economist magazine every week, and I'd pull it out and I'd sit down and read it. And now I have a two and a half year old and a four month old, and now it just sort of makes the journey from mailbox to end table to recycle bin, often without being opened. But I feel smarter having it there on the end table. And I'm sure there's a lot of great stuff in this article. But we, we want to live forever, we want to cheat death. How do I live? Forever. How do I get eternal life? We want to be remembered. But most of us, most of us will be lucky if our great grandchildren, our great grandkids, even even know our names, much less anything about us or what we've accomplished. We try to survive as long as we can. We, We try to live a healthy, safe life. We take our vitamins, we eat well, we exercise. We we'll wear our seatbelts. But ultimately, we realize all those things, they're good, but they aren't ultimately going to work. And we begin asking some serious faith questions. We start asking, How do I get eternal life? How do I live forever? And a lot of us here this morning, are, maybe you're already asking that question. Maybe you're already curious about it. And if so, you're probably already hooked. You wanna hear, How is Jesus going to answer this question? How do you get eternal life? But maybe for some of us this morning, we're not even asking the question. Maybe you're, maybe you're a Christian, maybe you're not, uh, and you don't believe any of this. But whether you're a Christian or not, maybe the thought of eternal life or, or what's going to happen after you die, or it just isn't something that's crossed your mind a whole lot, it just isn't something that feels pressing to you. What's interesting about this passage is that Jesus doesn't just tell you how to get eternal life. He also explains why you might not be asking the question, why you maybe aren't thinking about eternal life at all, which means that this message this morning, that it's relevant for for every person in the room, whether you're sitting here wondering, how do I get eternal life? What's Jesus going to say about this? Or whether you're thinking, I don't know, that question just doesn't seem that interesting to me. Jesus is going to explain both of those things. So how do you live forever? How do you get eternal life? Well, 2,000 years ago, a, a moral, successful, wealthy, upstanding citizen, a person in many ways, probably not unlike many of us here this morning, had that very same question. And he asked Jesus directly, He says, "How do I live forever? How do I get eternal life?" And we're not necessarily going to love Jesus' response to that question. And in Matthew chapter 19, we've been studying Matthew for a long time now, we're getting closer and closer to the final week of Jesus' life. And he's been teaching, and as he's been teaching, he welcomes children, and they kind of gets re- the children are kind of rebuked away by the disciples, and Jesus says, no, let them come to me. And then this guy comes, and the disciples are happy to have him come and talk to Jesus. And he says teacher what good deed must I do to have eternal life We know 3 things about this man who comes and asks Jesus this question First thing we know about him and from Matthew and the other gospel writers is that he was rich he had significant financial resources available to him Second we also know that he was a ruler which most likely meant that he was a leader in a local synagogue a place where Jews worshiped outside of the temple Now, if that's true, that means we shouldn't think of him as being rich in the sense of of a billionaire, this kind of extraordinarily wealthy person. He's he's what we would call today middle class or upper middle class. He's not, again, unlike probably most of us in the room this morning. And then third, Matthew tells us that he's young, um, probably probably my age, maybe in his his mid-30s. And so if this morning you're sort of in your late 20s, mid-30s, middle, upper middle class, this, this guy is you. And he says to Jesus, what do I need to do to live forever? Tell me what it is. I'll, I'll do it. What's the good deed I need to do? And then we'll, and then we'll be good. Which is the, kind of the classic religious approach to how we try to live forever if you know the rules and then you keep them well enough, most of the time, or better than most other people, then you're in. Again, this is the religious way. It's the way that a lot of us try. Whether we consider ourselves religious or not, it's the way we try to keep the rules to be accepted. But the trouble is is this is not Jesus' way of approaching this. This man knows that it's not working. It's why he's come to Jesus. He knows it's not working. He feels that there's something lacking. So he comes and he says, how do I live forever? And Jesus, knowing how disastrous this religious path is, he he sets the guy up. He says, well, what do you ask me to do? Why do you ask me about good, Jesus says. There's only one person who's good. If you would enter life, Jesus says, keep the commandments. And the guy says, well, there's a lot of commandments out there. There's a lot of rules and rabbinic rules. And which, which are the really important commandments, Jesus? And Jesus goes right to the, to the second half of the Ten Commandments, and he, he names off a number of the big Ten Commandments. He says, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery, steal, or bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And then, and then he also adds, not in the Ten Commandments, but this kind of comprehensive statement of loving your neighbor as yourself. Now, Matthew knows at this point, if we've been reading his gospel, he knows we've already read the Sermon on the Mount. He knows that we know that Jesus has already taught that it's not about just keeping external commandments, that the real issue is our hearts, and that you can keep all the external rules and go through your whole life and never murder someone or commit adultery, but do those things in your heart. We know all this. And this guy knows it's too. It's why he feels empty. You can can avoid murder, adultery, stealing, but still be a mess on the inside. Because this guy, he's kept all of the laws. I don't think there's any sense of of him having an arrogance or or being out of touch with himself. I think he really has kept all these laws externally. And this guy, he's he's the Michael Phelps of morality. At least as Michael Phelps is to swimming, he's the Michael Phelps of morality. He says, all these I've kept... What do I still lack? And, and maybe that's how you feel this morning. That you that you've kept all of the rules, at least the big ones, most of the time. But here's the answer. How do I live forever? Well, Jesus says it's it's not by being good enough. Even if you obey all the rules, you know you're still lacking. And if keeping all of the rules is your plan for living forever, you're going to end up ruining yourself both now and forever because now you'll constantly either feel incredible despair because you know you're not keeping them. You know how how not good you really are. And so you live in fear. You're always asking yourself, am I finally good enough? Um, Am I doing enough? Have I done enough? And you'll always have this gnawing feeling that you haven't done enough. I mean, at the end of the day, we can't even keep our own rules, much less God's. Or worse, on the other hand, you actually do begin to believe that you're keeping all of the rules. You define a certain set narrowly enough that you can actually keep them. And the problem with legalism isn't that you can't keep the rules, is that legalism actually allows you to think that you are keeping the rules. And you end up as a smug, arrogant, self-righteous, judgmental person. No one wants to be around. Right? And when you think about achievement and keeping a standard and maintaining a record, I mean, even an Olympic athlete, right, in, in a context where, where being good enough is everything. I mean, how many of those people do you remember from, from four years ago, eight years ago, twelve years ago? And even now, it seems like every time you watch an event, someone's breaking and setting a new Olympic or world record. Your record just doesn't stand that long. Someone's going to top you. Someone's going to be better than you. The same is true in the area of morality. The religious way just doesn't work. There's got to be another way, a better way. And Jesus tells us there is. There is a better, different way. But I don't know, again, if we're going to love what Jesus has to say. If you look at verse 20, this is what Jesus does, how he responds to the question. is, what do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, if you would be whole, complete, if you would be all that I have created you to be, if you would be perfect. Same word that Jesus used in Matthew back in the Sermon on the Mount to say you need to be perfect because your heavenly Father is perfect. So Jesus says, if you would be perfect go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you have treasure in heaven and come follow me come follow me i mean i'm just glad you didn't give him anything hard to do right how will it live forever jesus will sell everything you have give it away and then come follow me with no certainty whatsoever of what your life will be like And at this moment, even the disciples are starting to get a little confused because it's almost like he can kind of see them saying like, wait, Jesus, I thought it was 10%. So Jesus clarifies for them in verses 23 and 25. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, Jesus adds to it, again I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were astonished, saying, who then can be saved? So how do you live forever? How do you have eternal life? Well, it's not by being good enough. It's not by being rich enough. Which I think we we know, right? We, We don't actually think, well, somehow we could buy our way in that if we just have enough money and we sort of just give that money to God that we can buy our way in. And yet what Jesus is saying is that people with resources, people like us in this room, who've never, for the most part, most of us never really been in desperate or dire need, who've pretty much always known where that next meal is coming from, we've never really had to trust in the face of nothing, who nearly always feel in control. I mean, the rich, people like us, and we are the rich in this story. He's not talking about someone else. We assume we're going to be just fine, because for most of our lives, we've been just fine. It's worked out. Now there are a couple of ways that Christians throughout history and, and today have distorted this, two different directions, extremes that we can go to. And some have said that this means poverty is the goal, that when Jesus says to this guy, sell all of your stuff, that poverty is, is the goal for Christians. That being poor is somehow better than being rich. And it's just simply not the case. God in creation made a beautiful world that was designed to be plentiful. Talk to people who are in poverty, that's not somewhere you want to be. Poverty is not the goal. It's not what the Bible teaches. But on the other hand, some have made riches the ultimate goal, preaching a sort of, this idea of a prosperity gospel, that God wants you to be happy and fulfilled all the time and have every material blessing here and now. And if you somehow just pray hard enough and have enough faith, you can get whatever you want and be healed of all your diseases and just live now almost as if you were already in heaven. And this is also ridiculous and and completely unbiblical. Paul writes in his letter to the Philippians in verse 29, chapter 1, he says, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. So Paul says, not only has it been, you've been given the gift of believing in Jesus, you've also been given the gift of suffering for him. It's not a passage you probably hear quoted a lot in health and wealth preaching. So it's not poverty, the goal. It's not prosperity, the goal. So what, what is Jesus saying in this text then? What is he saying? Well, if you do all of your research, if you really study the original languages, if you dig into the commentaries and read all the best work, what Jesus is saying is this. It's super hard for rich people to make it into heaven that's really difficult for most Americans to live forever. So why is it so difficult? Uh, We can buy our way out of just about anything, most of us. Most of our problems can be fixed with money. We don't have to really pray or trust for a whole lot. If we get into a problem, we're we're able to, to dip into our savings or someone will give us a loan. But my sinful heart and the inevitability of death, we can't fix that. But we try. We do try. And if it doesn't work, and when it doesn't work, the other thing is that we can still afford to distract ourselves from the emptiness. Because Netflix is cheap. Facebook is always there, and Amazon can get it to me in two days. And so if I can't fix the problems that I have with my money the stress, the fear, the worry, sin, all of that stuff, if I can't fix that with money, I can at least distract myself from having to deal with it. So that instead of really dealing with the problems of of why we overwork, we can just take another vacation. Or instead of really working hard at figuring out how do I parent well, we can just continue to buy kids stuff to distract them. Or instead of, of worrying, we can eat or drink or just buy new clothes Instead of seeing our sin, we, we can entertain ourselves and, and almost forget how broken we really are. And so This is why that the rich typically don't make it. It's because we're too satisfied with where we're already at. That you don't long for, I don't long for another better world because we already have so much now. My, my life is good now, so why would I pursue eternal life? Because if you are poor, if you are oppressed, As so many people are around the world even in our country maybe you've experienced that even yourself in this room if you've been in those places you know that your only hope is for another life a better life the next life but if you have means even what we might consider relatively modest means you can get really comfortable here We just don't want to live forever. We just want to live here longer. We just want to figure out how we can cheat death, spend our lifetime just a little bit longer. So Jesus, how hard is it for people like us to get into heaven? Take a needle, Jesus says, and shove a camel through it. That's how hard it is. Now, maybe some of you are thinking, well, but Bill, I think I've heard somewhere in a sermon that there was this ancient gate in Israel. and It's like if the camel knelt down and they took off all of its stuff that the camel could fit through the gate. And it's just not true. That's a, it's an urban legend, an urban theological legend probably invented to soothe the conscience of some rich congregation. That gate, that was never a thing. Jesus is saying, look, camel through the eye of a needle. He isn't saying it's unlikely, or if you're rich, it's going to be hard, but that you can't actually do it. It's just going to be a little bit of a struggle. He's saying it's impossible. I mean, Jesus says that. He looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. And again, I think I can often comfort myself and say, well, well, too bad for those rich people. Because it's not, it's not, Jesus isn't talking about me. Because it's always somebody else, isn't it? We're never the rich ones; someone else is. And it's true. I mean, I don't, I don't feel rich. I'm sure you don't feel rich, and all of us, whether you have a lot of money relatively, a little money relatively, we all have problems with money, right? How much are we going to save and spend? We, we all feel like we don't have enough. But the median income in Kansas City, according to Forbes, if you took the whole metro area, the median income in Kansas City is about $57,000. <laughs> which puts us in the top 0.2% globally of wealth at $50,000 which means that, that most of us, not all of us in this room, but most of us in this room are richer than 99.8% of the people alive today. And even if you live at what the, the federally defined poverty level, you're still, you're still in the top 6% globally of wealth. And of course, historically, if you Slept in a bed if you earned, owned more than one or two pairs of clothing and you ate meat more than once a week, then, then by that definition, historically you were rich. So here's the thing: Jesus is talking to us. He's talking to you. He's talking to me. He's't talking to someone else. And he says, "If you're rich, it's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than for you to get in. So how do we live forever? Jesus says you can't, not, not in his kingdom. It's, it's impossible. He says you, in the place that you are, you're too self-sufficient, you're too distracted, you're too satisfied, and that there's more hope for a camel getting through the eye of a needle than for you. But mercifully, this isn't the end of the passage. It is where we stopped reading, but it's not where Jesus stops It's not the end. Because look at verse 26. Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. With man this is impossible. With God all things are possible. There is hope even for us. So how do I live forever? Well, it's not by being good enough. It's not by being rich enough. It's ultimately only by trusting the one who is enough. Because we can't do it on our own. You can't do it on your own. But if we're willing to trust Jesus, if we're willing to follow him, then maybe, just maybe, there really is hope for you and for me. So the question is, is what does this kind of trust look like? The kind of trust that takes a person, rich people like us, and allows even us to be saved. And this is vital. How do we avoid the life-killing trap that wealth can so quickly be? There's three things to consider this morning. So first, we need to get smaller. If you want to live forever, get smaller. Because then, how does this passage end? The final verse is this. That those who are first will be last and those who are last will be first. First. And while the humility that Jesus is pushing us towards is about a whole lot more than just money, it's certainly not about less than that. And I know that, that some of you are probably just waiting for me to say, now Jesus doesn't mean here that you have to sell everything, that there, there, you, can, you can keep your Xbox or the, the fancy car or whatever it is, but, but I'm not going to say that. Because Jesus doesn't say that. Now, Jesus doesn't ask that of everyone. And there are lots of other wealthy people, probably as wealthy or even wealthier than this guy that Jesus encounters in the gospel, and he doesn't make this demand on them. There's nothing inherently wrong with having nice things. There's nothing inherently wrong with wealth. In God's design, wealth is a good thing. That's not the point. But if your only comfort this morning is to look for that loophole, then, well, Jesus didn't ask this of everyone. If that's your only comfort, then you're probably exactly the kind of person who Jesus would say, you better start selling because you're too attached and it's going to kill you. So maybe we don't have to give it all away, but you can, can you imagine Jesus looking at any of our lives and not telling us to live with a little less and to give away a little more? Or any of a follower of Jesus hearing this and not thinking, okay, I need to think about and approach money and things radically differently. So I don't know this morning what you should do in response to Jesus' words here. But I do know that it can't be nothing. We can't do nothing in response to Jesus' words you just need to even begin to understand if this is, maybe this is just the first step to understand how is it that money can trap us. Um, sometimes it can trap us by we, we become lovers of money, that we, we daydream about what money can buy and how to make more of it. We're, we're jealous of what others have, and we, we aren't able to really genuinely be happy for someone who has something that's, that's nicer than us. We're just constantly thinking of how we can get more that's kind of turns us into lovers of money. But there's also, in this category for me, is where I think where I often fall, that we we're trusters of money. We feel like we're only in control. We only feel safe and secure when we have enough money. But you see, in the end, both being lovers and trusters of money make us servants of money. And Jesus is really clear that we can't serve God in money. We can either be lovers, trusters, servants, servants of God, or of money, but we can't be both. Jesus was clear about this in the Sermon on the Mount. And so maybe another place to begin is to just start taking an inventory of, of the stuff that you have, your income, your wealth, your, your investments, your, all the, just the possessions that you have, and, and just ask, does this stuff, does it bring me closer to God, or does it push me away? Am I using it only for myself, or, or is it able to be used in the service of others? Because ultimately, nothing's neutral. Either things are drawing us away from Christ or they're drawing us toward Him. And if something you feel like, this is just drawing me away, this is a distraction to leave it behind. Is my wealth, is it, is it about me? Is it, is it about us? Or do we look at it as an asset, a tool to be used for others? Or is it only about my status or safety or comfort Or indulgence. See, the the question we have to ask about money is also the question we have to ask about power and privilege and influence, because none of those things—money, power, privilege, influence—none of those things are inherently bad. And we we go wrong if we think that they are bad in of themselves. They're good things, and God, in His mercy and in His wisdom, has distributed them to us in different kinds of ways. It's a privilege and a responsibility to have those things. But the question we have to ask about them is who is flourishing because I have them? Who's flourishing because I have the power that I have? Who's flourishing because I have the influence I have? Who's flourishing because I have the money I've been entrusted with? Is it only me? Is it only my family or my little circle of friends? Or does it go beyond that? Now, at this point, some of us are maybe still thinking, okay, um, I get it, but really, Bill, can you just, I need an amount. Can you just tell me, like, percentage or an amount? And I actually do have the answer for you. Um, So Paul texted me this week. He found this um, question answered. The cost of discipleship is $16.99. So I'm really glad we have that. Actually, I looked at this and I thought, I'm pretty sure you can get it cheaper on Amazon. (laughs) The overhead of those brick-and-mortar stores is just brutal. Um, but we kind of try to think that, right? Maybe it's on sale. Maybe, I can, maybe the cost of discipleship, is, maybe it's, I can get a discount this week. And I, I wish it was that easy, right? That there was just a minimum rule. It's kind of like a, a tax code. You know, you can just kind of figure out, this is where I make, this is what I do here. Okay, and this is the amount I have to give. Cause it, and, I, and I do that at least a couple of times a year. It's usually like around tax time, around like year end, kind of beginning to the new year. I, I pull out my calculator and I start running the numbers and it's like, okay, well, if I take my gross income and I include not only my giving to the church, but maybe some giving I've done here, what if I do my net, but what if my, it's only my take-home pay? And I come up with these different numbers and try to feel good about the percentage, right, that I'm giving away. And I never feel great about it. One, because Jesus says that's not the way you get in. And two, it's probably because I'm not giving away enough. But even more, it's because Jesus doesn't want the minimum. He wants everything. He, he wants all of you, whether, whether you spend it, whether you save it, whether you invest it, whether you give it. It all belongs to him. It's all ultimately in his service. He wants all of it. The parts you save, the parts you spend, the parts you invest, the parts you give away, it's all his. So the only safe question, this is what Lewis says, to how, do you, am I giving away enough? And basically, Lewis says, if you're, if it doesn't hurt, then you're not giving away enough. If your lifestyle is exactly the same as everyone who makes the same amount of money as you do, then you're probably not giving enough away, Lewis would say. And sometimes we do get, get hung up on that 10% number. And it's a, it's a good benchmark, but there's probably some of us in this room who can afford to give more than that. And there's also some of us in the room who, who we just need a place to start. And you think, I, I can't give 10%. You don't, but you don't know the kind of student loans I have. And Start somewhere. Start giving something away. Otherwise, it will destroy you. Because if you're not a generous person, if you're not growing in that, it's easier to jam a camel through the eye of a needle than for you to enter the kingdom of heaven. So we need to get smaller. Second, we need to learn in order to learn this kind of trust, we, we have to look forward. We can't be focused on just now. Because Jesus, again, he is not endorsing poverty for poverty's sake. He's not endorsing sacrifice just for its sort of own merits. He's saying when we give away things, when we are generous towards other people, actually we're investing for rewards later. Jesus does not shy away from saying this. The gospel is radically reward-focused in this way. Look at what he says in verse 27. Then Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything to follow you, Jesus. What then will we have? Jesus doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't, he says, yeah, let me explain this. Peter says, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my namesake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. It's a pretty good ROI. So do you really think that you're going to miss out We do think we're going to miss out, right? and Rachel and I do this. We think, well, if we gave away this, it would mean we wouldn't be able to do that trip or go on this thing or buy this thing. And it seems in the moment like that's such a huge deal. But Jesus is basically saying, look, you've got such a short time, 80, 90 years in the span of eternity here. And I've got an incredible world for forever for you to live in. So, so what, Bill, if you don't get to see every national park before you die? New heavens, new earth, for forever you're going to get to explore. Look forward. So, how do we do that? Well, for starters, we have to remind ourselves regularly that we are going to die. We're going to die soon. I mean, hopefully not, like, soon, soon. But we are going to die, every one of us. I try to remind, every time I drive by a cemetery, I try to even just think, remind myself of that. Like, this is, there's a clock ticking on this life. Where am I investing now? I also try to remind myself that, that those things, the trips, the whatever it might be, the stuff, ultimately, like, it, it just doesn't satisfy It doesn't really soothe those longings. Yes, every good gift that we have is designed to point us to the giver, God himself, and we are given good things to enjoy. But we have to always look to where they're pointing. So when you're enjoying a good meal, enjoying nice things, remember, just don't be deceived that they're the best thing. They're just a tiny taste of the true good that's coming. Let the the good things point you on to the best things. Be thankful. And always look for more ways to just not be attached to the stuff that can weigh us down. So now at this point, you could be saying, you could be thinking. Now Bill... Are you just saying that that the one good deed I need to do is to be more generous? And if I'm more generous, if I do that good deed, then I'll live forever. And If you were to walk out of here thinking that, you would have entirely missed the point. Getting smaller, looking forward, these things, they're ultimately only a symptom of something greater. And that's, have we trusted Christ? ultimately, we have to follow him. Jesus didn't tell this guy to go do all that so he could earn his way into heaven, but rather to free him to follow Jesus. That's, the, that's where the note really strikes here. He says, do all this and then come follow me. Don't sell everything and then earn your, by doing so, earn your way in heaven. Get rid of all this stuff so you can actually obey the command to follow me, to trust me. One scholar makes a stunning observation in this passage. He points out the fact that money was for this man what the father was to Jesus. His identity, his hope, his all, his joy. And Jesus says to him, follow me. Because it's not far off in the gospel that the true rich young ruler, Jesus, he's the rich young man who comes from heaven, gives up everything to die on a cross for our greed and self-sufficiency, for our empty rule-following self-indulgence. And only then is there forgiveness in life. So follow him. Because no amount of goodness or riches or personal sacrifice or generosity could ever be enough. You have to follow him. The good life is not found in the accumulation of more, but in submission to him. Do we really believe that? I fight to have to believe that. Do you believe that there's not just something, the best thing now, but that there really is something better? That a new heavens, a new earth is coming. And that life with him, even if it means life with less now, is better. And here's the thing. The, the most tragic part of this passage is that it seems like this rich young ruler actually did believe that, at least partially. Because the worst part is that when he heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He went away sorrowful because he, knew, he was presented with Jesus, and, and he knew he was walking away from something better. I, I have to believe that, otherwise he wouldn't, he wouldn't be sad. He knew that Jesus was better, that his stuff couldn't save him or satisfy him, but he was a slave to what he already had, and he walked away from life. My prayer, and I've wrestled with this this week, and my prayer is that God, don't let that be me. Don't let that be us. Let us trust you. Save us from ourselves, save us from our stuff. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit and through grace, which is the only way this happens, would you allow us just to have really radical re- orientation towards the things that you've given us? Would we see them as good gifts to be used for your glory and for our joy and the joy of others? And would you let us be untangled from thinking that they can somehow keep us safe. I know I need that work in my own heart desperately. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.